Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Chicago's Legal Latte, a series of podcasts brought to you by Lavelle Law Limited. Throughout this series, the attorneys from Lavelle Law will share their answers to questions about a variety of topics for individuals and small businesses. To participate in today's discussion, you can email us at podcast at lavellelaw.com. If you're a small, maybe a mid-sized business, um, I assume one of your objectives is, is likely to find ways to do business with larger companies, uh, gaining a contract for, for goods or services with a major company can really, you know, sometimes be the catalyst that helps your bottom line grow. And if, if you secure enough of those deals, well, maybe you move up in size as well. Hi, everybody. This is Jim Mitchell, and, and certainly always pleased that you make time to join us for our podcast. Uh, conversation today is going to focus on that scenario in which a company seeks to do business, what, what we might call one of the big boys. You know, doing so involves frequently signing agreements and contracts, and, and that's where things can get a bit overwhelming for the small company. Now, to help all of us better understand the scenario and, and look at not only the issues but maybe some solutions is attorney Jim Boyt. Uh, Jim is a member of the team of attorneys over at Laval Law, a frequent and very welcome contributor to the podcast series. Always feel like I'm well-informed after he's here. So, Jim, you've had a busy day. Thanks for making the time. Good to talk to you again. Good talking to you, too. Thanks for having me on. Sure. Um, I, I know you shared guidance on negotiating with giants, as you like to call it, on this on this podcast in the past, um, and have always encouraged small and mid-sized businesses to pursue agreements with, with the bigger corporations. And in those discussions, we highlight issues that um, – some of them, you know, might find in negotiating terms with a, a larger entity. So let's let's slice that up a little bit today and take a little deeper dive into one particular area. And I know that, you know, from experience, almost all contracts include a section on indemnification. So before we figure out how to do that, how to deal with it, can you tell us a little bit from a legal point of view what indemnification means and, and why it's a standard practice in all contracts? Yes. So within the context of uh, negotiating with giants, what what we're talking about with indemnification is this. You're going to provide a service to that uh, large corporation. Let's say that you're forecasting some sort of consumer behavior, and the corporation is going to rely on that. But what if something is either wrong with your data or the forecasting that you provide causes them to lose money or maybe even worse, gets them sued? The concept of indemnification is one of two things, either A, if you get sued because of what I provided you, I will step in your shoes and I will defend that lawsuit for you. All right. The other concept behind indemnification is if you lose money because of what I've provided for you, then I will recompensate you for whatever losses you incurred because I didn't do a good job. So that's the idea behind indemnification is to basically make the other party whole. And in negotiating with giants, these large corporations almost invariably ask for indemnification. Okay. Well, let's let's talk about that because, you know, you just mentioned it invariably, and I think it's a great word to use in this case. I think it's always safe to assume that a major corporation who's going to have many, many contracts with smaller companies basically has a boilerplate, and, and that's what they send out. Is that really the, their starting point for negotiations is, is here's our form and, and hopefully people just take it and go with it? It often is. Yeah, I've actually been surprised by a lot of times 
you know, some of these large corporations will say, hey, why don't you send us your form? But whether we're starting with the form that is provided by the large corporation and trying to modify it or presenting our own, we know that we're either going to get a request for indemnification in the one they send us or they'll add it to the one that we send to them. Uh, so, but you're correct. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, for the most part, we're getting, you know, boilerplate language here, and it's uh, what can often be a rather onerous indemnification clause. And, and is it onerous to the extent that it basically just says, hey, you know, you're, you're on the hook for everything? Does it set certain limits? Uh, what do you normally see in what the, the larger company is looking for? Yeah, it often does not set limits, and that's what's scary. Um, and if you're dealing with the local one-off flower shop and they want indemnification, you know, the, the question is, as a consultant, how much damage could you possibly do to this one-off retail flower shop? <clears throat> but if you're providing you know, forecasting data or scientific reports or something like that to a large global corporation, the fact of the matter is that you know even a small loss for somebody the size of an AbbVie or Motorola can be an absolutely staggering number. So a Motorola CEO might say, "Well, we only lost a hundred million dollars," you know, mm-hmm. but don't worry, that's indemnified by the the Bob Smith Corporation. Um, you know, so so that's the, because you're dealing with a large corporation. If there is no limit on the indemnification that you're providing to them, the numbers get big very fast. And is it likely that they're willing to negotiate that particular clause in the contract? It often is, but it all depends on exactly what type of service that you provide. Sadly, if you're providing essentially a commodity service, you're a uniform vendor or or something like that, you know, um, you, you provide paper products, there are so many different competitors out there, they might say, well, if you don't want to sign our contract, somebody else will. Uh, uh-huh. If you have a more unique service, and a lot of the clients that we represent are, you know, scientists that have a very unique set of skills. They might be one of five or six scientists in the country that do this. And from that perspective, um, you you may be able to get a lot more negotiation. I have had good success in breaking down or limiting indemnification clauses in almost every situation, though. They're typically open-minded to it. The key is, and this was true at the same time, the last series we had on negotiating with Giants was, the key is do not negotiate with the procurement department. Do your negotiation with the executive inside that is trying to get your um, business on as a vendor. So they're going to sort of be your proponent within within the company. The, the procurement guy just got a list of different vendors he can go through. Exactly correct. Yeah, and the procurement guy is like, hey, you know, what do I care if you're a vendor or not? The 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 executive that wants to buy from you, he's the one that says, no, 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 I really want, you know, Jim Mitchell. I really want Bob Smith. I want that particular vendor. So we should give him what he's asking for. So that's one of the keys. Should a should a small vendor be nervous about opening up the negotiation, or at least offer, you know, saying, hey, look, I'd like to talk about this? Is there a risk that, as you just said, they the larger company might just swat them away, or is that something you should always ask for? It's a common fear that, hey, you know, I'm so happy to be doing business with this huge company. I don't even want to rock the boat. But I'll be honest with you. I mean, in theory, I'm I'm sure that could happen. You know, I've just personally never seen that happen. And I advocate a lot of contracts for very small companies working with very large companies. And I negotiate them a lot. And I really have just never been in a situation where the large company says, I can't believe you would even ask for that. Forget it. Deal's off. I've just never seen that happen. So it's certainly possible that it could. But in the real world, um, you know, for the most part, uh, you know, they might be somewhat annoyed by the fact that you're asking for changes to the contract. But I've never seen it turn into a deal breaker just because you asked. From a risk perspective for the smaller company, it sounds like the greater risk is not asking and taking on terms that could be devastating to you in the long run. 
<clears throat> that's correct, because a lot of times if you look at the size of what the indemnification could be, the magnitude of it, it could very well exceed the total assets of your company, um, the total you know coverage under your insurance. It could exceed all of that and then be a serious problem. And, of course, you know, dealing on the other side with a company that has relatively unlimited resources to pursue a recovery of its losses. Yeah, we're uh, we're talking to Jim Boyd of Lavelle Law, and uh, talking about how this you know small or let's say smaller businesses might approach the subject of indemnification when when negotiating with the giants, um, trying to get a business contract with a large global firm. Um, Jim's not only a great contributor here uh, as often as we can get him on, but uh, very active author. Uh, you'll find his articles uh, on the newly updated LavelleLaw.com, by the way. Um, He's got a terrific background in business issues, contracts, corporate structure, and, as you just heard, negotiations. So uh, his, his view is very, very valuable in our discussions. Now, Jim, when a, when a smaller operator decides to roll up their sleeves and, and start this negotiation, you know, what are they looking to achieve? What would make them feel good as they leave and sign a contract with somebody bigger in terms of indemnification? The home run is to remove indemnification at all, which basically says, I'm not going to indemnify you for anything. If you lose money because of the service I provide for you, or you get sued because of the service I provide for you, you're on your own. I have only successfully fully removed indemnification once, and it was because the nature of the services were predicting the future, in other words, predicting future behavior uh, within an industry, and our client held firm and said, hey, listen, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, you can't hold my feet to the fire if you rely on my prediction of the future. Um, and uh, they, we were successful, and part of that was that the, the service our client provided was 100% unique. No one else did it. Uh, so, but the home run is remove indemnification altogether. The next uh, best alternative to that is to limit indemnification to just a refund of what you were paid. So let's say that your contract is worth $70,000. That's what the company is going to pay you. Uh, you say, well, I'll indemnify you, but I'm only going to indemnify you up to the extent of uh, refunding what you paid. And I sort of call that the dry cleaners indemnification. If you look at the back of a ticket from your dry cleaners, it says, you know, we'll only refund you what you paid us to clean the, the clothes. We won't actually replace the clothing for you. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that's actually uh, one I've gotten on a pretty regular basis. So, you know, we're not going to take on millions of potential dollars in liability here. But if we did wrong, if we didn't do a good job and we caused your company damage, we'll give you back what you paid us. So that's the middle ground. The, um, after that, the third best alternative would be to say, okay, well, we're willing to take a risk beyond what you paid us, but we're only going to go up to the limit of what our insurance is. So if we've got a $2 million limit on our insurance, that's the most we're going to um, indemnify you for. Okay, and and I don't want to. I'd love to, but we don't have time to you know steer off in a whole other conversation here. But when you mention insurance, um, you know I, I don't want to make assumptions here, but I I have a sense that a lot of small companies have insurance because they have to have insurance. Uh, do you find that most of these small operators really know what their insurance covers them for? I actually find a lot of times they don't have insurance at all, which is surprising to me. Um, but, yeah, a lot of times they don't fully understand what their insurance is. So there's there's really two key issues um, when you're a professional providing services or a small company providing services is <clears throat> to have two things right. The first is have the right amount of insurance. Don't mm -hmm. limit, you know, don't save $120 a year because you got half of the insurance that you could have gotten. Um, oftentimes, when you look at it compared to the potential risk, insurance is relatively inexpensive. 
Uh, so the first thing is make sure you've got the right amount of insurance. The second thing is make sure you have the right type of insurance. I've seen you know professionals like a scientist, for example, that has general liability insurance. Well, that doesn't cover the same sort of thing that an errors and emissions policy would cover. And what you really want is that errors and emissions policy when you're dealing with your vendor or with your customer. So uh, that's the two keys: have the right amount and have the right type. And what does what does errors and admissions cover from a legal perspective for a small business? Really, it's 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 surprisingly it's exactly what it sounds like. It's just you're a professional. You gave somebody your opinion, and you made a mistake. You screwed up. Your opinion was wrong. Uh, we had a client that was a actually ironically an insurance professional, and she explained how a policy worked, um, a health insurance policy worked, and the way she explained it was 100% incorrect, and it ended up costing her client. $5,000 a year for a period of five years. So um, she submitted that through errors and omissions and said, hey, you know, I gave her bad advice. I, I, I was wrong in the thing that I told her, and her insurance covered her for that because she had the right type of insurance. You mentioned not wanting to, not wisely trying to cut costs on insurance. Uh, I'm sure a lot of small business operators say, look, I, I can do this negotiation. I've run my business, so I'm going to sit down and talk to these guys, and maybe they can hammer out an agreement. But even if they reach the terms once that's done, I got to believe you. You're going to say, "Hey, you know, before you sign anything, let an attorney at least look at what you're about to put your name on." Yeah, I think so. And, and you know, typically speaking, really, um, the, you know, small businesses negotiate stuff all the time, and, and they operate for the most part probably without any contract at all, right? I've never signed a contract to buy groceries, right? Um, so uh, when you're dealing with one of these huge vendors, the thing to keep or the huge customers, the thing to keep in mind is. You're dealing with such a large company, it is very likely that this will be a high dollar value contract for you. So you have to look at what the contract is worth to you and bounce that off of your desire uh, to save on legal expenses. I, I do these contract reviews, and, and a lot of times it's, you know, it might be, you know, a couple of hours of my time, you know, maybe, you know, four or five hundred dollars of my time in order to review this contract. When you think about the fact that it's a $140,000 contract over the next year, that review, you know, starts to look a little bit. Um, less burdensome. So, yeah, I think it's a good idea. And, and oftentimes, you know, we come back with changes and, and concerns and recommendations that the clients said they never would have thought of. So I, I think it is something that's worth it. Well, uh, certainly worth our time today to have a conversation with Jim Voigt of Lavelle Law. Certainly thank him for being with us. Always a great conversation. Um, and uh, if you want to find out more about Jim, his practice, and as I mentioned, some of those articles, or even past podcasts we've done together, uh, that's all at LavelleLaw.com. Plenty of great information there. So by all means, avail yourself the opportunity to enjoy that. And uh, we look forward to having you come back with us again soon. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Chicago's Legal Latte. If you have any questions or topics for a future episode, please call Lavelle Law Limited at 847 847- 705-7555 or email us at podcast at lavellelaw.com. 